Finishing off our series here called Current. Before we do that, here at Olive Branch, we have a board of elders that oversees me and oversees our spirituality here at the church and ensures kind of the safety and protection of our finances and a bunch of things like that. And uh, we don't have like term limits and things like that. In fact, the men who join these boards often will stay for many years, kind of growing and learning and caring. And uh, two of our elders over this last year, uh, it's beginning last summer and now just recently, have uh, finally said, hey, I think our time is, is up and we're ready to move, for, move on and move forward. And we're bringing them here before you just to celebrate and thank them. So would you, um, I just want to welcome up here Skip and uh, Bill and uh, their, their wives, Linda and Jeez, Marla. Okay, Marla, I forgot you. So anyways, would you just thank them and welcome them up? We're going to pray over them today. And um, so uh, Bill and Marla, they're going to still be around. They act, Bill and Marla actually help in our Boy Scouts and our American Heritage group, uh, a girls group. And they just ensure that these young men and these young women are growing in the knowledge of Jesus, along with kind of all the wonderful aspects that happen in, in Scouts. And they've been here around for like 15 or so years now, and uh, Bill's been part, was part of our elders team, and he stepped down last summer, and he's uh, been a part of that for 12 years, did our chairman for a little bit there, for a couple years there, and then Skip and Linda have been involved in our, um, our whole care ministries, like when you talk about CR, Celebrate Recovery, or our uh, Safe Harbor ministry, they've been doing that for years, they have been kind of guiding in the background, or actually moving it forward, praying with people, and so Skip and Linda are actually moving off to Arizona, we're kind of bummed that they're taking off, but uh, Skip was our chairman for many years, about five years. He also has been on the board about the same length as, as Bill had. And so we're just, again, thankful for them. And we just want to pray over them. So as a church, would you just join with me? If you want to extend a hand or something like that, you can do that. But we're going to pray over them now. Father, we thank you for the ministry that you've done through these men and their wives here in this church, God, for men and women have been so critical in the hearts and lives of so many people. Thank you for their leadership gifts. Thank you for their wisdom. Thank you for the decision-making that they have helped us uh, in over the years here at Olive Branch through the ups and the downs and the difficulties and the good times. We pray now that you would anoint them with your presence again for the sake of the ministry that you're working them into. God, whether it's the scouts or whether it's wherever... Um, Skip and Linda wind up going. We pray that you would indeed use them greatly, enable them to continue to place their mark in the hearts and lives of disciples and bringing many to know you. We pray that you would use them now as you use all of us, for we desire, God, for you to be known at Hollow Branch in our hearts and wherever we go. And so again, with Skip and Linda, we pray for safety and they would find a, a home in Arizona, that a home church where they can minister and um, make just uh, powerful moves uh, for your name. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thank you guys again. He was appreciate you. Well, thank you guys for um, joining me in that. It's been a long time coming, and we're um, excited for where they're going to be headed off to next. In the meantime, we have been working through a series here called Current. And what we're talking about is a, is a conversation that's been happening, at least in the evangelical church, in the church like ours. And that has been some younger people have been coming out over the last few years and kind of saying, hey, you know what? This gospel thing, this message of Jesus, yeah, it's good, but it's not working anymore. We need to, people don't like it. We need to to change it. We need to adjust ideas of like sin and what that is and what Jesus did and who he is and how he works because this, this message just isn't working anymore. We need to adjust and shape it and change it. And what we did is we've been looking in this series at the fact that 
We don't need to change that message. In fact, it's not powered by whether or not the gospel is liked. It's not powered by whether or not the message is going to be received by the masses or whether the, the world thinks it's on the right side of history or something like that. And in fact, that message oftentimes will be offensive, and we've seen that. But it's our job with care and respect to use reason and logic to engage with the word scriptures and to challenge and to talk through this, as we saw, because the gospel doesn't change. But then we also saw last week that it needs to have an adapter at Times. We need to put it in terms that people get. We can't just talk about, you know, God's atonement and his, uh, you know, substan- uh, substantiation and all this, you know, things that maybe theology majors like me love to talk about. But we can't, we've got to dive into the, the terms in ways that people get it because God powers the gospel. That's what we've been seeing. And he sends us out as wires. And that means we need to be able to bring that message in, in the ways that connect with people. We talked about like the idea that Look, we're all looking to understand ourselves. We're looking to know who we are. Many of us will go see counselors or we'll go get um, various, uh, you know, personality profiles and things like that to find out more. So maybe we can just fix whatever's going on inside of us. And we want to challenge us that, hey, maybe what you need is the best counselor in the world. The counselor who knows you because he made you. And the counselor who's available, but he's so expensive. You got to have something to pay for the price in order to reach this counselor because our sin, our mess keeps us away. And Jesus is the best Groupon deal you're ever going to find because what he did is he took all that payment and he paid for it. And you just simply receive what Jesus has given you and you have access to God. You have access to that counselor who will walk in your life and lead you. That kind of idea. We put it in these terms and then we are able to bring it maybe to a level of our friends where they get it and they grasp it, that then it can begin to have traction. Now, we're not changing the gospel. We may be just changing the analogy or bringing it in a way that can be heard, like in English. And so this week, though, we've done all this work on the gospels unchanging. And this week, though, there's a problem. Because let's be honest, some of us, some of us are like my Thanksgiving. You know, like last Thanksgiving, we went up to the mountains and uh, got this opportunity to know that, hey, in two days, there's going to be a snowfall. And we had my first, in my life, my first white Thanksgiving. It was pretty awesome. Got to go up there and we played for a couple of days with the kids in my in-law's cabin. My in-laws were there and we kind of enjoyed ourselves. And then right in the middle of, right just before Thanksgiving, the snow started to fall and it kept falling and it kept falling and it kept falling all the way into Thanksgiving. We're out there and we find out the plows haven't been maintained and so they're falling apart even the new ones. And so the streets aren't getting plowed and our cars are getting more covered. And we're going out there trying to clean them out a little bit to make sure we can get out of there when we get the chance. But we end up at Thanksgiving enjoying ourselves. And halfway through the day during Thanksgiving, suddenly the power just goes off, completely off. Well, as we're sitting there, we're enjoying that for a little while. It gets dark and we're reading. And my kids are slowly beginning to get a little anxious about the fact the power's off. They're like, Dad, the roads aren't plowed. The power's off. The refrigerator doesn't work. This is getting freaky. We're going to be here. We just studied the Donner Party. This is not going to go well. <laughs> and we're, you know, that, we were sitting up there kind of stressed out and went to bed. We're like, don't worry about it. Power will come back on. Went to bed, got up the next morning, no power. Next hour, next hour, next hour, more and more nerves, more and more fear. I'm starting to get nervous because I'm going to get locked in with my kids for three days in the cabin up there where they're nervous. Hey, you know, just, just funny stuff like that. And so we're finally, suddenly my son's praying, my daughter's praying. They're just like, come on, come on. And the power goes, bleep, turns back on. And we're like, awesome. Yes, this is great. Find out the rest of the town had no power for three days. But that section got power plowed the roads, got on, got home. My kids are like, God's awesome. You know, they're ready to just pray about anything and everything at this point. 
But uh, we also found out at the same time that Edison had done a great job over the year, previous year of maintaining the lines up there because in that section they had had a four-day a four day blackout the year before. And it was that maintenance that enabled them to get it up faster, enabled God to answer my kids' prayers, enabled all this to happen. Because here's the thing, we waited just long enough and the maintenance was ready and boom, we're ready to go. Now, we could have left early and we would never found out when the lights turned back on. But here's the thing, some of you guys, you feel like that power outage. You've been trying to share the message of Jesus. You've been trying to share that there's hope, there's access to heaven, that you don't have to do good works to get there. It's given as a gift by God through Jesus Christ. You've been doing this for years. And to be quite honest, some of you guys have gotten to the place where it feels like a blackout. You're exhausted. You don't know if God's doing anything through you. You don't even know if you can do this anymore. You don't even want to do this anymore. You feel like you've been mocked and looked at weirdly and thrown under the bus and you name it and you're done. Some of you may have even gotten to the place where like, I've even tried to change it so that maybe it'd be easier to accept. I'm just so done with this thing. And I think that might be what's going on in a lot of places around the church. We can get to the place where we just want to quit because we think there's just no energy. There's just no ability that the lines are old. They're frayed. They're broken. And yet I want to tell you, hang on, because God loves, God loves to maintain his messengers. He loves to continue to give us what we need so that we can continue to get that message of hope and life to the people that we love that surround us. And the reason where I get this from is my confidence comes from the book of Acts. Obviously, if you want to open your Bible up, you can go here to Acts chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 17 today. And, and so if you don't have a Bible, grab a Bible. They're under the seat. You can pull it out. If you don't own a Bible, go ahead and take that Bible home with you. We, don't, we got plenty of them. We'd love for you just to have one. And what we're looking at here in Acts chapter 18 is a, is a book, if this is your first time in the book of Acts, is a book that is a history of the early church. Now, it was written by a man who is a doctor. His, we call him Dr. Luke. And Dr. Luke wrote this history at a request of a Roman official. And it's the first 25 years of the church. And so from the ascension of Jesus after his resurrection to the time where this man, Paul, is arrested and thrown into jail in Rome for preaching the gospel. Now, this Paul, who was once a persecutor of the church, met the resurrected Jesus, converted on the spot, and was after planting churches all over the Mediterranean world after that in the Roman world. And so we follow this Paul along and we come to a place where he has been kind of preaching a message all through what we would say is modern day Greece. And he's been thrown out of town and thrown out of town and beat up and all this stuff's been going on. And we just left Athens last week for a new location. And this is, begins in verse one. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And so again, this is what it looks like. It's a little 40 mile journey to the west from Athens to Corinth. He's traveled all the way to Galatia, all around. And so what we see is this opportunity for Paul to move from the college town of Athens, where all the ideas are being debated and talked about, to Corinth. Now, when I say the word Corinth, in the Greek, in the ancient world's mind, you would have just heard Las Vegas, okay? Because that's what Corinth is. It's the Las Vegas of the ancient world. What happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. This is the most sexually, um, probably morally flexible group of people you will ever meet. They were willing to go to frat parties just on the weekend. They would do anything and everything in every temple you could imagine. These people were open. I mean, completely open. To be called a Corinthian was to be considered the most open and vile name in the ancient world because you had no morals. Paul's walking from the college town to the frat town, and he's going to engage with the same message. But the problem is Paul's not feeling too encouraged, I don't think. 
In fact, when he writes to the Corinthian church in his letter that you'll find later in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians, he says, I came with fear and trembling. Now, you don't usually think of a man who's planted churches and seen success all over what is modern-day Turkey over there on the right is going to come in freaked out and nervous about what he's going to see, except for the fact that up there in the north, in Philippi, he got caned for it with literal canes across his back, thrown in jail, then barely released. He goes down to the Thessalonica where a mob runs him out of town and then runs him out of the next town, and he has to set sail to get away from these people down to Athens where they kind of look at him like, yeah, you're cute, and that's about all that happens. And now he goes into this new town where everybody loves to party, and he thinks, my goodness, is anybody ever going to even listen to this? And I think Paul's extremely discouraged. His two friends, the people who's been going with this entire journey, are still up north, far away from him. Maybe he's got Timothy. We're not told he's got anybody. It seems like Paul's just kind of roaming around on his own. And so he enters into town with fear and trembling. And God sees that he's got this issue, and he's going to provide him something. He's going to provide him what he needs, and I believe what he provides him is a community. Check this out, verse 2. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently from Italy, with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. This is an important note right here. We know of this event. Outside of the Bible, we have Roman history that tells us that Claudius had come to a point in 49 AD where he was exhausted with the Jewish debates that were going on in the Roman city. In fact, it wasn't debates anymore. They were arguing over a man named, get this, Crestus. It's one letter different from Christos, which is the name for Christ. And many people feel like the Roman officials didn't know what they were talking about, that they were arguing over Jesus Christ. They were arguing over whether he was the Christ here in 49 AD in Rome, and riots were breaking out throughout the streets of Rome as the Jewish people were yelling and screaming and arguing over the issue of Jesus. And so they go, get these guys out of here. And Claudius in AD 49 kicks all the Jewish people out of Rome. And so we are looking at a time period either just after that, just roughly after 40 and in 49 AD or 50. And so we know exactly the time period Paul's walking in in history. And so he walks into this town, he sees that there's Priscilla and Aquila, as they will be called later, and he says he wants to see them because he was of the same trade and he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And it's this sudden connection with somebody who does his own trade, somebody who does his own work and is a Christian that guides him and leads him to a community. One of the things that can be exhausting is that you and I can go to work and we, we can go to our family dinners Or we can engage with our friends and we can start talking about Jesus or we can get around to that conversation and it feels like it's the same old thing. There's just nobody who's backing you up. There's nobody who's with you. You're just wiped. You're so tired and engaged with these people, but nobody else seems to be doing it. And you're like, God, give me some encouragement. I need somebody around. Maybe it's your small group that you find somebody else who's got the same heart as you to try to reach your neighbors or your friends. Connect with them. Maybe it's somebody in your family. Maybe it's somebody in your, in your neighborhood. Whoever, wherever that person is, connect with them because they will give you energy. And I know God does this. I know God gives us others to keep us going. The reason I know this is I've seen it happen time and time again. When I, uh, my daughter... I'm telling you guys, has gone into public school, and uh, she's a brave young lady. You see, she was homeschooled, and then private schooled, and then homeschooled. And so her friends, all of her friends, are homeschooled homeschooled kids. And so she didn't get the luxury I got growing up when I went 
to public school. You know, I had the same friends from kindergarten all the way up through sixth grade into junior high and high school. Man, we had our close friends. We were connected with each other. We would hang out. I knew them all the way through high school. And it was great. My daughter walked into San Diego High School on her first day of the year, and she didn't know anybody. 4,000 kids. And she's staring at this, walks in. I told you guys, it was like a rated R movie, slapped her in the face with all the kind of something crazy. She's like, ah! homeschool. And so that's that, that reality. And, and so, but she was so brave. She walks in there and she meets a friend and this friend is not a Christian, not like her, but she's able to connect with her and she's been hanging out with her friend or friends for, for quite a while and engaged in these conversations. Here and there, she'll talk about her faith and things like that. But about a month in, she came home. She's like, I'm tired. I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to go to school anymore. And it wasn't like the typical teenage, I don't want to go to school anymore. It was like, I don't have, any, I don't have anybody who's a Christian. This is getting exhausting. And it was discouraging. She felt like there was a blackout. And she, was in, she wants to do some acting and stuff. So she tried out for the, um, for the play at Santiago and actually made the play. It was pretty awesome. So she goes and she starts doing this play with these other new sets of kids. I'm like, get to know them. It's a great location. And as she's doing that, she meets a couple of girls who are kind of, you know, they're not cussing and they're not doing stuff. And she's like, huh, I think they might be Christians or Mormons, one or the other. That's what you got, right? <clears throat> and she finds out they're Christians, that they go to another church in town and she's like, Oh, it was like a like fresh water had flowed into her life. Suddenly, there was somebody who she could talk to, connect with at the same level, she could engage with, and they all understood the same tensions and things. And it's been one of those refreshing moments that you can find. And I'm, tell, I'm telling you, if you're in this place where I don't know anybody who's a Christian, find them. They're there. They may be in a small group who can encourage you. They may be at your workplace. They may be in your school. They may be somewhere just around the corner and you don't realize. They may be baby Christians that you get to encourage and grow. But it is one of those things. They are there. They are available. I've watched it in my brother-in-law's life. I've watched it in my personal life, my kids' lives. Trust me, God is ready to help maintain you. Don't quit the work that God has given us because you're just like, I got nobody around People need this message. People that we love need to know that heaven is available through Jesus. And just because we're drained, ask God, bring me that person. I need that person. And God will give it. God will bring it just as he brought it to Paul. And here's another thing. You're, some of you guys are going, that's Greg, that's great. I, I realize there may be people out there who are exhausted and don't have any Christian friends at the school or something like that. But just be quite honest. Many of us don't have that issue. What we have is, I got only Christian friends. Can you please point me to the nearest non-Christian somewhere so I can actually have a friendship? The longer you live in the faith, in North America at least, the longer you're a Christian, the more likely you do not have non-Christian friends. It's just been the nature of what's going on. We are more and more divided as a culture than ever, and it's less likely that you're bringing non-Christians on a regular routine around you that you would call them a friend. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who you think of as a project. We don't want people to be projects. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus had friends. Jesus had relationships. Jesus leaned into people. And the longer we are in the faith, the more I hope we're building friendships with non-Christians. Now, that's hard for me. Let's be honest. I built a lot, I've got a lot of non-Christians around me. Not, I, got, like, I preached at my staff like all the time. Only Brent repents every week, and that's about it. But I'm not kidding. Um, no, and so pastors have an issue. We're stuck around Christians, we may get an opportunity to talk to your friends or whatever where we get that chance, but you guys are on the front lines. Paul was on the front lines. And what he was doing was he didn't engage until he had that community. 
And then God gave him the opportunities. Notice how it continues on. It said, then he reasoned. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, he goes to the synagogue. Well, where else did he do it? He did it as his work. Why is verse 3 so fixated on the kind of work Paul did? It says, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. That's a pretty important thing when it repeats it that close together. Dr. Luke is focused in on the fact that this guy was a tent maker. He was a leather worker. Paul wasn't running around trying to make money off evangelism. He was working here as a tent maker where he got engaged with regular people, just like you guys. Paul understood something. God, when you feel like, I don't got a connection, God will give you ways. He will give you lots of ways to get the message up. And one of those major ways is your work. Your secular vocation, the calling God has you to do, is often there so you can engage and connect with people I will never see as a pastor. That no evangelist will ever talk to. That no person, the message of Jesus won't get to them unless it gets to them through you. And here's why. Let's just be honest. When I woke up this morning, and I woke up on Friday morning, I didn't wake up and stretch and go, oh, you know what I'm going to do today? I think I'm going to go to the mosque. That sounds like a good idea. I hear they got this nice family outing thing going on. I'm going to go over there and join the little family Valentine's Day thing at the mosque. No, I don't go to a mosque, so I don't go to a mosque. I'm not Muslim. Now, in America, we might venture to a church, but it's becoming more and more often that if you don't go to church, you just don't go. And if you're here today because you were invited, we're glad you're here. And we're excited that you would even consider looking and checking stuff out, and you'll have lots of questions, and that's okay. You, you should have those questions. We want to help engage those where we can, but the bottom line is most people on their own don't wake up and go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to church on Sunday. It just doesn't happen. And I want to encourage you guys that there are people that I will never see that will never consider going to church that you are talking to every single day at your work. I'm not saying turn them into projects. I'm saying make them friends. You should, we should care about everybody who's made in the image of God. We should care about everybody, even if they're different than us, even if they have different lifestyles than us, even if they have a different viewpoint and politics than us. Man, we have got to be connected with people who are unlike us. Because Jesus has called us to do this, and this is what Jesus did. And this is what Paul did. He was working a trade. He constantly had connections with his work environment to be able to connect with people so he could share Jesus Christ. What's fascinating is we got to get in our mindset that you guys are the ones who've been given the opportunity to get the message out there. You are the wires. You know what I am? I'm the equipment manager. I hand out the equipment. I kind of train and, and hand stuff out to you guys. And what, what it is is that you guys have been put in the places that make the difference. Right now, this was, given, this was delivered to me by a guy named J.D. Greer. He's a pastor in North Carolina and is the president of the Southern Baptist um, kind of whole church kind of uh, association. And he was talking about the power of vocational ministry, the power of what you guys have in the sense of you work in a secular world and you have a message. He says, do you realize right now in the 1040 window, that's the 10 latitude and the 40 latitude between those is the mass of humanity that has never heard of Jesus before. This India and China and Southeast Asia and the Middle East. And when you go talk about Jesus, they're like, yeah, what street does he live on? That kind of level, okay? And when we have right now in that territory from the United States about 42,000 missionaries. Only about 42,000. Now, considering that China has a billion people and India has a billion plus people, you, you, that's not very many missionaries. And yet, here's the weird thing. We have two million, two million Americans working in, that, in the 1040 window right now. 
if 35% of Americans claim they're Christians, and 35, roughly the statistics would say about 35% of those people to claim they're Christians, let's just say that that's a nice big number. And let's whittle it down. Let's just say 10% of them are diehard. They know the gospel. They're ready to give it to people. They're excited. If 10% of them understood that they're not only there to do a great job for their business, but they're also there with the message of Jesus, you've just increased the missionary force by 200,000 people. And it costs the church donut, right? <laughs> and the power of your vocation is that they're going to go talk they're going to go engage with high-level businessmen, with government officials, with people that, guess what? Nobody's running a little ESL class or a little vacation Bible school is ever going to meet these people. Then you have more access to people who have, the, who have a different mentality and a different world because you work. Don't displace your work as something that you put aside and go do. No, you bring that message to your work. You bring that message to your school. You bring that message to your neighborhood. Maybe it's your hobbies. Maybe you're like, I can't do it at my work. You're like me. You've only got uh, Christians surrounding you. Well, guess what? I'm convicted that I don't have any really strong non-Christian friends. And I'm like, I, I got to do something about it. So my whole response to this sermon this week is I'm going to the gym and I'm signing up because I got to get around people who aren't like me. That's the only place I can figure I can go hang out with people who aren't like me and get a shot at, at just making some friendships. I, mean, I guess I could go to the bars, but that would be weird. But the, uh, <laughs> but the idea for me is to get engaged. For you, maybe it's your hobby. We have guys who do a game night, and they bring people together every Thursday night, play these crazy Euro games and different kinds of games, and people like this stuff, and they try to bring non-Christians together with them so they can just relate and connect over something that they all enjoy. Some, we have a pints and ponderings group. People like microbrews and talk about theology. That's an interesting concept, and that's what they do. You have this, these different interests. Maybe you like quilting. Maybe you like uh, motorcycles, classic cars. You name it. Your interest is an ability to gather people around you for friendships and connections, just like Paul did, for the sake that one day, maybe, if, if that is the right moment, to give them the opportunity to hear the gospel. And God gives many ways to get this message out. Don't look down on any of these opportunities. He is maintaining these connections so that we can have these opportunities. Now, that's great for Paul. Paul's got some opportunities. He's pre preaching in the synagogues. He's preaching at his workplace. And next thing we know, though, it starts getting better, it looks like. It says, verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that Christ, the Christ was Jesus. So he's doing his work. They find him working out, doing kind of this stuff, talking and arguing and building relationships, everything that he can. And now his friends are there. And yet here's the problem. Verse 6, when they opposed and reviled him, that means that, that these Jewish people were reposing and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to him, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Now that sounds so like, forget you people, I'm done. I'm walking away, right? But yet, here's the thing. This is Paul's people. This is Paul's people. These are his Jewish brothers and sisters. He actually will say in the book of Romans, man, I'd rather go to hell than see these people not believe. That's how desperate he was for his Jewish brothers and sisters to hear it. Man, that's a heart. And we should have the same compassion. We'd be willing to sacrifice our own lives for the people around us to hear, for the people in our block, for Corona and Temescal Valley to know the way to heaven. Man, that's what our passion should be. That's what Paul says. So can you imagine how frustrating it is when they keep ignoring him, even insulting him? I bet some of you can. 
I mean, you keep sitting at the table with the same people at Thanksgiving. You keep talking about the faith, and they just keep looking at you like you're crazy. And one family whose father is now in a nursing home just rapidly in the last week, and they would say every time they would bring the gospel up to him, this is what he would do. He'd stand up, turn around, and just walk right out without saying a thing. Didn't want anything to do with it. Can you imagine how that feels? Imagine the depth of pain you have that somebody would just listen and not close it off. Just consider it. Just, just engage just a little bit. And what happens as Christians is when we face that enough times, you'll start to label yourself. You'll start to go, I'm just not an evangelist. I, I can't do this. Nobody listens to me. They need to bring him to church and let him listen to Greg. No, guess what happens to me? You need to go take him to the other Greg because I don't think of myself as an evangelist either. All these years, I will preach the message and preach the message. And people are just like, yeah, great. Yeah, awesome. I'm just like, oh. And I walk away going like, you know, nobody, nobody's responding. I ain't Billy Graham. I'm no, I'm no evangelist. You know what I think I am? I'm a magnet for nerds. That's exactly what I am. I have gone cold turkey evangelizing all kinds of times over my life. And inevitably, I will randomly choose a person from a crowd, walk up to them. And these are people who just took their first philosophy class from RCC, Philosophy 101. And they think they've just disproved Christianity with all these new thoughts. I'm like, really? How do I keep meeting you people? And so I've labeled myself, like, I can't really do this. I'm not really good at this. I'm really not going to, because I don't think I see anything. Guys, that is just a way of filling the blackout. That's the same feeling that we can begin to have when we get this kind of response. How do you think Paul feels? He just came out of Thessalonica. He came out of Athens. Nobody's listening to him. The Jews in Thessalonica are rioting against him. The guys in Philippi didn't want to hear anything. Nothing happened in Athens. These guys are reviling him. He's like, I'm done. I'm going to talk to these guys. And that's what he does. He turns around, walks out. He goes to Titius Justice's house. He's a worshiper of God. And it was the house next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, he actually believed in the Lord and together with his household. And so he goes with him, loses his job because there's a different one at the end here. But he loses his job, goes next door, and with Paul, starts to talk about the gospel. And then this is the line that's interesting. It says, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Man, what an encouragement. It's working. People are coming to faith. Look, the Jewish people rejected it, and all the Gentiles are receiving it. I don't think Paul was excited. Maybe, maybe that's a stretch. But what's next on the agenda for Paul in his PTSD, right? Because I think Paul had PTSD at this point. I preach to the Jewish people, they yell and scream at me, they don't like it. I go to the Gentiles, they receive it, they get jealous, and I end up being what? Run out of town or beaten up. And I think right now Paul's watching the pattern happen again. And he's going, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure I want to stick around. I think I'm good to go now, God. We got some people converted. I'll leave it to my buddies. I'm out of here. And maybe we feel the same way. You know, I'm not so sure I want to bring this up this year at Thanksgiving or Christmas. You know, I'm not so sure I want to bring this situation up at, at work again. I'm not so sure, you know, I'm out of here. And we can get to this place, we black out and we're done and we need some encouragement and God will be there. God can and does. He gives us promises to keep us going. And that's what he gives Paul. He leans into Paul, or Paul goes to bed one night and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid. Why does he need to tell him not to be afraid? Because he was. But what was he afraid of? Go on speaking. Don't be silent. I am with you. No one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in the city who are my people. 
What an encouragement. Paul was clearly worried he was going to be attacked, clearly worried he was going to be thrown under the bus, clearly worried that bad things were coming. God says, no, hold on. And he gives him an encouragement. He gives him a promise. And it encourages Paul to keep going. You may be at a place where you're discouraged and you're not sure this message is going to work anymore. But you're like, I need a promise. I'm not telling you God's going to show up to you in a dream or a vision. He could. And he has for some of you. But listen, most of the time he's not going to because he's given you a book of promises. He's given you promise after promise after promise in the scriptures that tell you, look, go into all the world, he tells us. Make disciples in every nation, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, teach them to obey everything I commanded you, and here's the promise, I will be with you to the end of the age. You're out there engaging with people, and you're going, is God even with me? Every time you engage in sharing the message of hope, God is with you. Every time, guaranteed, it's his promise. He's never abandoned you. He will not forsake you. He's not going to throw you down. You can't do a bad job and him go like, whoa, I don't want to associate with that disciple. I'm out. You know, that's not going to happen. God is going to be with you. He is going to be leading you. He'll be empowering you. He'll be engaging you. And we don't have to fear because we have promise after promise. What if they're going to attack me? It says he will be your front guard and your rear guard. He will be your great refuge that you run to and you will find your safe. Even if you die, even if he takes your life, you will be raised from the dead. You will find yourself alive in eternity in victory. You have all the promises that you need to keep you moving, to keep me moving. We have to remind ourselves of these promises. We've got to put them into our souls and into our lives on a regular basis or we will feel like we're losing and the defeat is inevitable and it's right around the corner. But remember, God is with us. He's given us these promises. And when he gives you a promise, often comes with it as a challenge. Don't give up. There are people left in Corona that are his people. There are people in Temescal Valley that are his people. There are people in Norco. There are people at your work. There are people everywhere around us that are his people. Don't stop until you've brought that message. Don't stop. You don't know. It may be the next time something changes. It may be the next share that they begin to hear. And if we gave up, we just gave up one time too soon. In fact, when you get that promise... When you sense that God's call is on you for that fact and he's pushing you forward, you have a choice. You can either obey or disobey. After this message, I don't know what he's doing with you. I have the right, I have to either obey or disobey. Go to that gym, sign up and start doing what he's told me to do or don't. Get engaged or don't. Paul obeys. He jumps right in. Verse 11 says, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He stuck it out for a year and a half, ready to go, and he sticks it out. You may be ready to go, stick it out, keep going. You don't know what God's about to do. Keep engaging, keep moving forward. And I get it, it's hard because guess what? Your entire culture is trying to tell you your faith is ridiculous, it's illegitimate, it's foolishness. Haven't you read about evolution and science? It's disproved your faith already, guys. Don't you know in sociology that you're moral bigots and you're cruel and unusual people that you all got on the wrong side of history somewhere back there? Um, go read a history book. All your history is all this meanness and cruelty. Hasn't Sam Harris and all these guys told us so? I mean, look, nobody, none of the politicians want to hear from you anymore. We've, they want to shut you down. Just have your faith in church. Go home and have it at home and leave it out of the public square. Your boss doesn't want to hear it. Your coworkers don't want to hear it. Just shut up already. I don't know if you're hearing the same message as I'm hearing, but that's what I'm hearing constantly. Everything is 
You're idiots, Stone Age, doofuses. Haven't you read an internet page lately? We can feel delegitimized, and that's exactly where the message goes. Paul gets there, he engages, he's preaching, he's doing everything. And again, he is brought before a government that tries and has attempted to be delegitimized. Look at this, verse 12. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. Now, let's pause right there for a second. Gallio is an important person. You've never heard of him before unless you're like in ancient uh, literature or something like that. But Gallio is one of the most famous proconsuls to have ever walked the earth in the Roman time period. His father was a famous, named, a famous order named Seneca. His brother was an, also named Seneca, who was a, uh, a powerful um, philosopher of the Stoic philosophies. He's in a family of famous people. And he himself is considered the lawyer of the lawyers in the family. This guy is the good ruler, the guy who gets it right every single time. He was the one, if you were, you know, if O.J. Simpson was on trial, he would have called Gallio to be on his dream team, that kind of a situation. This is the guy you run to if you want on your team for a defense. And so Gallio is in this town. We know he was there, and we have evidence he was there between 50 and 51. So this is in that time period. Paul is still there from the roughly 50 to 51. We have it nailed down when this occurs. And he goes, he's brought before the tribunal, and they're saying this. This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth to defend himself, Gallio said to the Jews, if this were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them out of the tribunal. Why is this even important to focus on? What's the point? Except for the fact that when you have Gallio himself saying, no, 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 Christianity is part of Judaism, in that world, it meant they were a legitimate religion. Every Christian who was standing before a court in the Roman world would now be able to go, well, Gallio said, we're just part of the Jewish faith. Gallio said, we're over here. That Gallio said the Roman law isn't against us. Gallio says, and at that point, mouths are done. They've been legitimized by Gallio, man. You're done. You're good. And that's what Dr. Luke is getting at. He's saying these guys lost the argument because Gallio says, nope, you guys are legitimate. They were so ticked about this that they seized Sothenus, the ruler of the synagogue. They beat him in front of the tribunal and Gallio's like, eh, whatever, have fun. Gallio was so out of it, but this is that legitimizing that will occur. God will, in order to keep us going, legitimize his gospel. He will bring legitimacy. Science hasn't disproven Christianity. Let me give you a flash. You want to talk about evolution? Yeah, it's a great, 18, it's a great concept for the early or for the mid-1800s and the early 1900s before we cracked open a cell and realized there's a genetic code that's more complicated than anything in your Mac. We find ourselves in a situation where we can look into the distance of the universe to find it had a beginning, which is exactly what the Bible says. What was before that? The scientists say, nothing. Right now, try to think of nothing. Nope, you're thinking of something. Because you can't think of nothing. When there's something, there's always something. When there's nothing, there's always nothing. There's not, it's not a nothing. That's not possible. Things don't come from nothing. We look into the laws of physics in a world that should be chaotic and there's order. 
as the Bible indicates that there should be order from an orderly God who created everything, you look in sociology and what we're discovering is the people who are having the happiest marriages with the best adjusted children are often those who are the most religious. And they, are, they bring their children to church and they obey the word of God. What we discover is that when we engage in our faith, when we follow after Jesus, we make differences. You get into sociology and you actually engage in what missions brings to a third world nation. When the gospel erupts in a third world nation and it truly is engaged by a church, those towns, all the indicators of life rise. Every single one. Because they start to value each other in the image of God. They start to follow the ethic of love. They start to engage with self-sacrifice for the sake of the other. They start educating so they can know the Bible and its terms. Over and over and over again, every indicator of a good life grows where the gospel is planted and develops. Historically shown after ever, throughout the entire history of mankind from the barbarians on. Yes, Sam Harris loves to rail on it. Why do you think now we have Jordan Peterson who's like, time out, Sam. You can't say Christianity was a blight on humanity. Look at all the good it brought. Like the very idea of human beings having rights. And there's whole movements of what they call Christian atheists who are atheists, but think of Christianity as the value that has been brought to the world. There is legitimacy happening all over the place. And so when the arguments are brought, what do we get from the young philosophers? Yeah, that's a joke. That's just garbage. That's not a real argument. Yes, it is. What you're doing is dismissing. You're not engaging in argument. You're not engaging the data. You're dismissing the data. You're calling it junk science, junk philosophy, armchair philosophy. No. Engage it. Guys, your faith has been legitimized over and over and over and over again. Do not cower in a corner or fear that this message somehow doesn't have power or legitimacy. If you meet a friend who doesn't, has a question, you don't know how to answer it, we already taught you, you say, I don't know, it's a good question, let's go find out together. If you're, a, if you're someone today who's a skeptic and you're engaging, I want to challenge you, get engaged with Starting Point. It's a place where you can bring your intelligent questions and begin to examine who this Jesus is and the worldview behind him so that you can actually engage whether or not this is true or, or what. And I want to challenge you to engage it because it's important that you would. In the end, what I just am here to see is that in all these cases, when there feels like there's a blackout, maybe it's a lack of relational support. Maybe it's a lack of non-Christians to become friends. Maybe it's a feeling like you're just not sure, you know, what's going to happen next. And I'm being locked into an old situation again and again and again. Or maybe it's just simply that you find yourself feeling like your faith is delegitimized so you can't get out there with the gospel, God will bring you what you need. He maintains his messengers. He empowers the gospel. He sends out us as his wires to connect with the people. We adapt accordingly and he will maintain us so we can. Don't quit. Don't give up. Keep going. Amen, church? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you just for a people willing and ready to hear you from your word, to be challenged by Dr. Luke and what he's writing about. Paul, thank you for what you've given to us. Would you help us now to go from here without fear, willing to engage the questions, willing to engage seriously the issues because we love those that are around us. We long for them to know you. We long to know them for eternity. We long for them to know 
you, their maker God, in such a way that you shape and change them. And so we present ourselves before you that you would use us. Use us in our workplaces, in our hobbies, in our homes, in our neighborhoods. Wherever we are being called to go, help us go and help us to obey, knowing your promises with us. That you will never leave us, you will never forsake us. That you will indeed give us the words that we need at the time that we need them. And that your word will not return void. It will do what it's determined to do. We thank you for all that you're giving to us. We lay ourselves before you in the name of Jesus. Amen.